Toomer doesn't invent something completely new, doesn't reinvent the wheel. A tumor typically uses the pathways that are necessary to regulate tissue homeostasis in a particular tissue in adulthood or even reuses the one that were used early during development. I'm Jane Grogan and I'm a scientist, specifically an immunologist, so someone who studies how the immune system works. One key part of my job as a scientist is to communicate ideas with other scientists and also with people outside of the field. One of the cool things is this podcast allows me to do both. For the past two seasons, I've had the privilege to speak to some of the brightest minds in research, but I'm not done yet. This season, I'm going back into the bar to see what my colleagues are doing to research some of the most complex diseases and see what they're up to. So grab your favorite drink, get ready to unlock your science brain and join us for Two Scientists Walk Into A Bar. Where do you think cancer comes from? I think it's just some kind of mutation that, that, that's happened that, that causes you know, the cells to, to behave that way, yeah. Definitely the environment. I would say there's a lot of environmental factors that could cause cancer. Environment, food, stress, DNA mutations. We all have it. It's just a matter of time uh, on trying to avoid it. But I think we've all got it in us. I think your immune system most of the time kills the gene that's been mutated, right? It stops it from proliferating. And when it doesn't is when you form cancer. Pretty close. And indeed, it's all of those. Cancer is a really complex biology, a convergence of genetic mutations in normal cell pathways that a cell depends on for just normal growth, genetic mutations in these so-called tumor suppressive genes that we'll get to later, and even a dependence on the tissue environment in which the cancer cells are growing that provide things like nutrients and blood supply. Here to help unpack all this complexity and someone who's dedicated his life to this research is Fred de Savage. Welcome, Fred. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'm just going to go right into it and ask a very simple question that I think is a very complex answer. So what is a cancer cell? Well, that's a good question. You're starting with a difficult question. <laughs> Simply put, Cancer is basically a cell that has lost control. It has lost this intrinsic ability to regulate itself, to decide when to divide or when to differentiate. And it's proliferating, it's dividing randomly in an uncontrolled manner and will then form a mass that will grow and then disseminate through the body, which is typically called metastasis. In a normal cell, the instruction to proliferate will come from a cytokine, a growth factor, that will trigger a receptor that's at the surface of these cells, for example, the epidermal growth receptor, that will, when activated by this cytokine, initiate a signaling cascade, a cascade of event, activation of now molecules that are inside the cells that will communicate that instruction all the way to the nucleus and instruct that cell, for example, to start cell division, to start replicating the DNA that will start mitosis and cell division. And of course, this is a very basic way cells communicate, and we have talked about this in other podcasts. Cells in our body are 
growing and differentiating and proliferating all the time. So there are mechanisms around how cells differentiate and they grow into neural cells or liver cells and how they need to undergo apoptosis to control that. And it's a very homeostatically regulated system. How are cancer cells different to this? It's first important to understand how the normal body, how normal tissue functions. This is where it all starts, you know. Typically, a tissue is driven first by a stem cell compartment, an undifferentiated cell that has the ability to self-renew and to proliferate. That will divide and then give rise to all the differentiated cell types that form a tissue. And of course, a stem cell can be instructed to differentiate to a variety of different cell types depending on where that cell sits. And because it has infinite renewal potential, infinite ability to divide, this is the ideal cell to be the source, the origin of a tumor, because a tumor will divide, you know, constantly, will not exhaust itself. So typically, we think of the stem cells as the cell of origin of a tumor. Of course, there are other scenarios that are possible where more differentiated cells can revert to a stem cell phenotype and become a tumor. But that would be number one, you know, that this stem cell compartment is this origin uh, of a cancer. As you said, there are various mechanisms that will regulate the proliferation of that cell, that will regulate the apoptosis, the cell death of that cell, and then its ability to differentiate. What happens in cancer is that you will accumulate mutations in that stem cell compartment. These mutations can be caused by a variety of factors. They can be totally random because a cell, when it divides, has to copy its three billion bases. And you can imagine that copying three billion bases, you know, we used to describe three billion bases <laughs> in terms of number of yellow page textbook, you know, filling rooms and rooms of yellow page books. Right, and of course, every time a cell divides, it's transcribing and replicating that information. Exactly. And so it's going to make a few mistakes every time, very few. It's incredibly, you know, uh, accurate into copying exquisite. them. But just a, a few mistakes, if they take place at the wrong position, you know, may lead to, you know, dramatic consequences. And so over time, this can be uh, uh, one way by which you accumulate the mutation that will lead to the development of cancer. Of course, this process can be dramatically accelerated by mutagens, by agent chemicals that cause, that induce these mutations, and the ones that we know the best are cigarette smoke, for example, or exposure to the UVs of the sun. But of course, in a normal cell, there's DNA repair that happens all the time to just correct these minor aberrations along, you know, chromosomes. Correct. And this is why we don't develop cancer everywhere all the time, because, again, these proofreading mechanisms are incredibly good. And in general, we end up just with very few mutations. Still, these mutations may even happen in these proofreading mechanisms, and as soon as they're disabled, your cells will accumulate a great number of mutations. So what kind of mutations does a cell need in order to kind of shift from a normal cell into a cancer cell? So, so as I said, you will have a lot of mutations in, in your tumor. Most of these mutations are actually, they have nothing to do with the cancer, you know. You can have tens of thousands of mutations in a cell. Most of these we 
call them passengers mutations. They're not relevant to your tumor. It's only a couple of these mutations, of course, that you need to make a cancerous cell. We typically think that you need about five to ten mutations uh, in that order to make a tumor. And these mutations need to disable very specific mechanisms. They will be affecting the ability of the cell to die, the apoptotic mechanism, a whole bunch of genes regulate that, so they could be the typical target. You typically need to only disrupt one of these to block the apoptotic pathway. They need to dysregulate the ability of the cell to proliferate. Many of these are growth factors pathway, growth factors receptors, signaling uh, molecules in these uh, growth pathways so that the cells replicate all the time. Uh, processes like that, these are mutations that are, again, in normal genes that you, know, you use uh, in tissue homeostasis. We therefore call these genes that are prone to develop a tumor, we call them oncogenes. They're normal genes that then, if mutated, lead to the development of cancer. And these mutations can also occur in tumor suppressor genes as well. Yes, so there's two different types. Either you gain function in an oncogene or you lose function of a tumor suppressor gene. The results more or less the same, but basically you activate a pathway that would lead to proliferation, or you disable a pathway that would lead to apoptosis, to cell death. Jane. That's Wellington, my producer. Are oncogenes and tumor suppressor genes the same genes doing two different things? No, they're actually different sets of genes. So oncogenes, or proto-oncogenes, are genes that normally help cells to grow. But when it mutates or has too many copies, it can become permanently turned on when it's not supposed to be. There are dozens of these genes um, in cells, and some examples would include things like BRAF, EGFR, MYC, and dozens of others. Conversely, there are tumor suppressor genes that slow down cell division, they repair DNA, they regulate the apoptosis or death pathway that we've talked about in other programs. When these genes are mutated and don't work properly, they can no longer control the cell cycle pathways and cells can grow out of control. Both types of mutations lead to cancer. And then why different mutations in different tumours or different mutations in different tumour types? So this is something that we are still all studying, a very interesting questions. Typically my way of, of seeing it is that a tumour doesn't invent something completely new, doesn't reinvent the wheel. A tumour typically uses the pathways that are necessary to regulate tissue homeostasis in a particular tissue in adulthood or even reuses the one that were used early during development. I think that's a really interesting way of thinking about this because often people think about cancer as something that's invaded us, you know, like a pathogen. But in fact, it's something that is being dysregulated along a normal pathway that we have intrinsically. Totally. It's just a random process by which you mutate genes in a cell, but only those genes that have a potential role in that cell will have a consequence, will lead to the abnormal growth of that cell. If a signaling pathway that is useful for the growth of a breast tissue, for example, like you've already discussed the HER2 pathway, I believe, in one of, uh, of your earlier podcasts, and that if you now 
abnormally activate the HER2 pathway in the mammary gland, you will have a breast tumor that will develop. You can activate that pathway in other tissue that have never used the HER2 pathway, that have never cared about it, nothing and will nothing happen. Happens. Exactly. So that really begs the question, you've described mutations that happen within the cell, so very cell intrinsic, but in order for that cell, that cancerous cell then to thrive or keep going, it has to proliferate and it has to do that um, in a certain tissue microenvironment. Yes, so each, each tumor exists in a specific tissue, will mutate pathway to proliferate abnormally, to prevent death, but will also need to circumvent defense mechanisms, for example, that are in the microenvironment. Stromal fibroblast, for example, another cell type that, that typically uh, is present in, in most tissue, you know, in many cases prevent or curtail the growth uh, of a tumor. And by sending out now signal, in general secreted factor, to its environment, the tumor will be able to get rid of this uh, stroma or reprogram that stroma, for example, in a support that will help it grow. Another very, very well uh, understood pathway that is being used to reprogram the environment is the angiogenic factor VEGF. That's a vascular endothelial growth factor that will help the tumor recruit a vasculature so that it can feed itself. It so needs it blood. creates its own blood vessels. Exactly. So okay. it will influence its environment by secreting factor that will now do that, or as you've discussed also in a previous fact, in, a, in a previous podcast, to to fight or to prevent the immune system from attacking it. Well, so I think that's really fascinating, you know, as an immunologist too. When the immune system comes into play, um, there's many cell components to that, and there are signals coming from the tumor that will be forming these blood vessels or instructing that, and then within the blood comes the uh, immune system to start to help fight the cancer cell. So it's another homeostasis that's going on in a tissue beyond just what's happening within the cell as well. And one of the things that I think is really fascinating is, is when you think about the immune system coming in to fight the cancer or the tumor cell, is the tumor cell not only is putting up these barriers and stromal cells, it starts to mutate genes that are really important for recognition by the immune system. So for example, MHC or HLA molecules, which the T cells need to, to see to target that T-cell and eat it, kill it and eat it. They downregulate those molecules as well. And these are beyond just the mutations that you're, the, the driver mutations that you've described. And they're probably also one of the mechanisms that the tumor really needs to, you know, take care of in order to be able, able to develop one of the defense mechanisms that we have. We've discussed already probably the, the, the DNA repair mechanism and all that. There's probably many tumors that we would have developed or that we have developed in our body over the years that we've never noticed because the immune system got rid of them in time and we just didn't know they were there. Little blips that we don't even notice. Exactly. So um, back to mutations and back to um, why it's so hard to drug, directly drug and target tumor cells because you know, on paper it sounds simple, right? You describe those five to ten mutations, you design drugs to those, bam, they should be targeted and depleted from the body. But as 
tumours grow and respond to their environment that may include the drug environment that they're in, they start to mutate or develop resistance as well. Yeah, so, you know, first of all, just the fact that we now know what all these mutations are and what all the important mutations, the oncogenes, uh, are is just fascinating. You know, in, in my career as a, as a molecular oncologist, you know, we went from just being able to sequence one or two genes to now being able to just sequence a whole genome in a day. So we have sequenced now thousands of genomes between the public effort and various private efforts, you know. So many tumors are sequenced that we understand very precisely most of the oncogenes, what they are, who they are. Only a few of these can we drug, you know, not the majority of them. There's many that we still don't even know how to drug because they're not enzymes. They, you know, they're proteins that we just don't have an easy way to develop a drug against. And maybe a good example of that is mutations that are in the KRAS mutations. In the KRAS, exactly. That's probably one of the most commonly mutated oncogene. It's been very difficult to drug. You know, the more classic kinase, those, those enzymes that mediate phosphorylation, these we know how to drug quite well, and, and most of the oncogenes that are kinases have been drugged today. Jane, what does it mean, difficult to drug? Well, something like KRAS, these mutations could be as simple as just an amino acid change. And what that does is that it can cause a slight structural change in the protein. And we've talked about how proteins are these three-dimensional objects in other podcasts. And so when you're trying to link a small molecule to that, you really under have to understand how that small change creates a new pocket within the molecule. And then you need to find a drug to fit that. And KRAS has just proven very difficult. The other case that we've discussed uh, earlier on is the case of tumor suppressor. If you have a, a loss of function mutation, meaning that your gene now is gone, the protein is not there, obviously if it's not there, you cannot drug it. You know, you have really to understand the signaling pathway, the downstream component uh, uh, in that pathway to go find a target. Uh, that you can uh, uh, drug. And that's been a lot more complicated as well. The more classic example uh, of commonly mutated tumor suppressor gene is P53, the one, you know, the gatekeeper of apoptosis. Its signaling pathways are multiple and not really well characterized in, in cancer so that we cannot really drug that pathway to date. But coming back to your question, if we now have a drug, against an oncogene, take the EGFR uh, oncogene for the treatment of lung cancer. The problem is typically you do develop resistance to this treatment. The idea here is that you have so many mutations in your tumor, these mutations can be different in every tumor cells because you keep accumulating these mutations as the tumor develops. So if you catch that tumor too late, when it's already developed, you know, to a pretty large mass, there will be, statistically, there will be some of these tumor cells that have now accumulated an additional mutation that will render that cell insensitive to your drug. So yes, you will have a response to the drug. All the tumor cells that are sensitive to the drug will go away, 
but that now that one cell or these few cells that have an additional mutation that either prevent the drug to bind or that activate a component that is downstream of your drug target in the signaling cascade will start or will keep growing and will recreate that original mass, but an original mass that is now insensitive to your drug. I just want to go back to the kind of pathogenesis of the disease, right? A cancer starts developing mutations that can't be controlled by just DNA repair mechanisms, etc. It starts to proliferate, it takes advantage of its, if its microenvironment. What's happening? And what's happening maybe in colon cancer, for example? Yeah, colon cancer is a fascinating one. It's one that we understand, actually, quite well. It's, you know, relatively easy to, to you know, observe. You can even visualize it with colonoscopy and, and detect it quite early, leading really to cure by, you know, removing that tumor, which is, you know, still the best approach. And, you know, from all the sequencing studies, we really understand every step really of that tumor progression, both at the level of, of mutation and uh, uh, pathophysiology. So we know which mutation does a, a colon cancer tumor need to accumulate to form. Typically, the most common mutation there is mutation in a pathway that's called the wind pathway. The sad story about the wind pathway is we do not have any druggable target in that pathway. The most classic mutation or mechanism by which you activate the wind pathway is by mutating a tumor suppressor that is called APC. You also, in a percentage of, of colon cancer, do disrupt these uh, mechanism of DNA repair, these proofreading uh, mechanism. These leads to tumors with very high mutation burden uh, in that case, uh, interestingly, these are tumors that you can treat with immunotherapies because they have a very large number of, of uh, neoantigen. Typically, this tumor will develop in your colon, and as they progress, they will start breaking through the intestinal wall and will start invading surrounding tissue, ultimately disseminating to other organs. Typically, they'll first disseminate to the liver. More rarely, they can disseminate into your lungs. So that step of metastasis is still a very interesting one that the level of, of mutation we do not fully understand. We're still today trying to understand which mutation, which oncogene would be responsible, is responsible for that metastatic process. Once the tumor invades into these secondary organs, like the liver or the lung in this case, it becomes very, very difficult to cure someone from that disease. Jane, what's a mutational burden? It's really just quantitating the number or amount of mutations within different gene and pathways in the cell. So contrast that with something like pancreatic cancer. So pancreatic cancer suffers of the same issue of not having targeted agents that are active against any of the oncogenes or tumor suppressor pathways that are mutated to cause pancreatic cancer. The main pathway that is mutated in pancreatic cancer uh, is the RAS pathway, and we do not have yet a drug to target KRAS. So in addition to this lack of drugs for the treatment of pancreatic cancer, the other problem with pancreatic cancer is that it's very difficult to detect. You can visualize a colon cancer with a colonoscopy, 
but you can't in the pancreas, obviously. Um, are you talking proteins in the serum, enzymes, all genetics? Um, where's the field going? Yeah, so that's, that's a very interesting question and, and a very interesting field as well. Indeed, you know, typically people think about colonoscopy and mammographies as uh, early detection. Maybe in terms of, of blood markers, people are familiar with the level of PSA that we typically try to measure for the detection of prostate cancer. But we're trying to come up with more and more of these markers that would be relatively easy to measure now uh, to detect early the presence of, of tumors. And maybe one of the most fascinating area right now is the ability to detect circulating tumor DNA. So basically you have a tumor developing somewhere in your body. This tumor constantly shed a few cells, a little bit of DNA that is different from every other DNA sequence in your body because it has all these mutations. mutations. That so it's got a different footprint than exactly. other DNA. And you can now isolate and detect this circulating DNA in your blood. So that is potentially one of the area where we're gonna get uh, a lot, gonna make a lot of progress uh, in the future in terms of uh, early detection of tumors. How sensitive will these assays be in relationship to our own immune system? Great question. I mean, you don't really need a lot of mutations for the immune system to start to react and see it. Um, and key, but that's in the tissue um, when we're thinking about solid tumors, for example. And, and what's key is to be able to pick up that response really early on in, in the blood, for example, so we can have a, a simple um, diagnostic. I think technology is certainly heading that way where we'll be able to pick up really low amounts of circulating DNA that is coming from these cancerous tumours around the same time that the immune system should just be kicking off. And then if we could target the cancer and then target the immune system at the same time, we could be in this really sweet spot of catching cancer really early. So, Fred, you've been doing this for a long time. <laughs> um, what got you into the area of oncology? My first foray into oncology was really uh, at the time where biotechnology was after cloning those growth factors, the cytokines that, for example, promote the formation of the various blood compartments, EPO, GCSF, and, you know, the one that I cloned is, is called TPO, thrombopoietin, that promote the production of platelets. And the idea was that to give patients chemotherapy, you had to support their blood cell count, and the one that we couldn't do at the time was to support production of platelets, and that's what TIPO was uh, supposed to do. And that was fascinating, very exciting and all that, but that's also when I realized that, well, this is supportive care, you know? In the end, we're still treating patients with these very aggressive chemotherapies, and what I wanted to do, really, was to start going after the real mechanism-based uh, approach to target cancer because that's where we started to uncover uh, all these oncogenes. And um, so I turned my attention to just that, to, to new pathways that were emerging as driving cancer. And the first one that I got excited with is, is a very peculiar pathway that's called hedgehog. So yes, when we think about signaling pathways, one that you know very well is hedgehog or sonic hedgehog even as it's called. No? Yeah, hedgehog is, is, is really my, my favorite uh, <laughs> I, pathway. I have to say, it's, um, I still don't quite know why scientists give genes these really wacky names sometimes. <laughs> so, 
How did Hedgehog get the name Hedgehog? So Hedgehog, yeah, it comes from, from very creative scientists that were studying flies in order to understand developmental biologies. And they're very creative because when they, they mutated genes, you know, they looked at these embryos under the microscope and were giving uh, them names based on the shape uh, of the embryos. And in this case, you know, they run into uh, a mutation that caused you know, completely disorganized hair cuticles in these fly embryos. And basically these hair cuticles reminded them of, you know, the spikes of a, of a hedgehog. That's how it got called. So it turns out that this hedgehog gene discovered in flies, of course, also exists in humans and, and pretty much all other vertebrate organisms. And uh, it's really important in humans. It's important for the development of pretty much every organ in the body. Very important for development. Exactly. And the question that we asked early on was, okay, what happens to these developmental pathways that are important early in development, off in adult? Could they be responsible for the development of some cancer if now a mutation was to reactivate it because it's so important in development? And indeed, the hedgehog pathway, when mutated, does lead to the development of very specific cancer, a very common form of brain cancer in kids called medullastoma, and then the most common form of cancer in human, which is called basal cell carcinoma, which is a form of skin cancer. Mm -hmm. And so we discovered some of the mutations in the pathway that leads to the aberrant activation of the pathway. It leads to unrestrained proliferation of basal cell of the skin when mutated. And because we understood the mutation, and in this case we had a mutation in a gene that encodes a receptor uh, in the pathway, but a receptor that has a shape where we have a good pocket where we can fit a drug. So we did develop a drug to block the pathway. I think this is a really elegant example of kind of switching up how we think about science sometimes. Like taking something very no well known in one area, whether it's in this example, developmental sciences, even neuroscience as well, and, and applying it or even applying it in the opposite way to a question, and in this case, cancer. Um, it just goes to show we, we don't know everything and we have to keep asking the right qu questions in the right context. We do, we do. And, and again, I think it is one example where it's really important to understand how things work, even in, in the normal organism, you know, importance of understanding developmental biology because in the end, this is what disease, cancer uses, reuses, activates in order to form a tumor. So understanding the basic mechanism there really led to an understanding of the disease and an ability to develop a drug. 10 years from now, where do you think the field will be? Or where would you like the field to be? Well, that's a good question. Things are moving so fast now that every year I'm surprised by how many new things do come up. Uh, so it's a great time to, to be in science. I think if you have to, to, to speculate on, you know, the basis of what we already have now and understand now, you know, all the, the various tools that we already have to, to target uh, a, a tumor will be combined. And this combination of targeted therapies, of uh, immune therapies and all that will give us, you know, again, results that we have not seen yet. In terms of completely novel modalities, that becomes more difficult to predict. But we're, we're making unbelievable progress, even in technologies to drug 
or to target these molecules, these, these components that I had described as very difficult to drug. When I said RAS, for example, and, and many others now, we're making progress in our ability to even target these when they don't have a catalytic pocket, for example, where initially we knew how to develop a molecule to block the activity of these enzymes. We've got new tools, new technologies now to try to go after the undruggable. I think that's really one of the areas that I'm the most excited about. Fred, this was great. Thank you so much for talking with me today and helping unpack the complexity of cancer. And I wish you all the luck in your future research endeavours. It was my pleasure. You know, one of the things I never get tired of is revisiting old questions in science because we don't have all the answers. And as fields unravel and new technologies come on board and new ways of analysing things, we get to actually re-ask old questions with new ideas and new technologies. And as we do this, as you've hopefully heard from all these podcasts, we're making true scientific insights into new diseases and new biologies, or known biologies and known diseases. So thanks for listening. Keep telling your science fans about us. Like us on Facebook and Twitter. Download the podcast from your favourite podcast app and rate us on iTunes. And now for me, it's back to the lab. Yeah.